Hi, I'm Michelle Briere, Mani Dubonnet's Ojibwe from Canada. And I am Shakti Hayes from the Cree Nation, Canada. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And we love and support Community Radio. Why? Because it speaks the truth. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandry and Bunawang people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of the First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We want to recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. Today is the 18th of March. The year is going by so fast. And in studio today, you've just got me, uh, Eidwin, the presenter for today. Um, you can imagine with what's going down with COVID-19 at the moment, our team is in a little bit of kind of reshaping to suit the cr- health crisis that we have going on in our country, as national pandemic has been called. So this show might be looking a little bit different in the coming weeks, but don't worry, we'll keep you informed and keep you updated as it changes. You know, it's, it's weird being in in a studio by yourself. You get very self-reflective, and I've just realized that whenever I get in the studio, the most time I spend is not prepping the mics or organizing things as I ought to, but instead it's picking out the cup that I drink my cup of tea from. And it's quite a weird point of existentialism because I just spend way too long. Today I've got a completely plain cup or mug and I'm wondering what it says about me or the state I'm in or if it says anything if I'm just completely overanalyzing it (laughs) which is very very possible um now you might have also alluded on to the fact that recently uh the team Rob Jess and I have been trying a new kind of intro thing where we bring up an interesting fact that we've learnt throughout the week. So I thought, seeing as the other two weren't here today, I would bring up my fact. Because I thought, I came across this and it was one of those odd ones which you don't really think about until you hear and then you go, oh yeah, that that would totally make sense. So my interesting fact this year is, um, also today, this show, is that... um, we are moving into a period of obviously this digital news revolution where information is just so exponential and accessible online and everywhere and you're bombarded with it. But alongside that, it's actually been a huge, um, ri- we've seen a huge rise of news avoidance, which has ridden among consumers from 57% back in 2017 to 62% in 2019 and even higher at the moment in 2020. And this news avoid- avoidance is actually driven by a sense of fatigue news fatigue so it's kind of like there's so much information out there there's so much overwhelming need to fact check and you know fake news and sensationalist news la 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 it's just this huge bombardment and it's been reflected in the stats that more people are wearied by the time that they reach headlines so if you are tuning in at seven o'clock i mean congratulations thank you for joining me on air for my prattling um but yeah also just this acknowledgement that we are constantly consuming news and at some point it just becomes too much so 
with that in mind, I will keep today's show's tone quite light. However, I can't promise you about the guests we've got on. We've actually got a few exciting guests. We've got Professor Billy Giles Corty coming in to uh, on on the air, and they're going to be talking about how city and urban design can influence uh, well-being. This is actually one of Rob's prepped interviews, and I'm very excited to explore it because uh, Rob's always into his urban design, and those stories are pretty cool. We then have at 7.30 Scott Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation giving us an update from uh, the Tarkeen in Taz. That's at 7.45. Then at 8 o'clock, Dr. Patricia Runwald, and she's actually from, let me get the official title, the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. Yeah, I had a feeling I would stuff that up if I didn't see it. And finally, at 8.15, we've got um, Dr. Ibrahami in from an international relations lecturer at La Trobe University coming to talk in about the, um, the Afghan deal between the US and the Taliban that went down recently. So, yeah, we'll dive into more of the context as we reach those stories. But for now, alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby. That was Shirley Elise with Nitty Gritty, which is the intro to our alternative news. Now, I thought I'd keep alternative news light this week and have a comical look at, of course, the topic everyone's been talking about, COVID-19. So last week I had a bizarre moment when I watched a security guard at Woolworths hand out toilet paper to like a dozen of people um, standing around him. And it was really quite a very controlled thing. And uh, a very controlled procedure, I should say. And it brings up this whole idea of the absurdity of the health crisis and the reactions, cult reactions that we're kind of seeing spawn out of them. And I was reading this weird little conversation article, which has asked basically a bunch of different 
thinkers and academics why that why toilet paper has become you know the the savior of the health crisis rather than something like you know washing your hands or actual health health procedures. So uh, interestingly enough, Nikki Edwards from the School of Public Health and Social Work, Queensland University of Technology, pointed out that toilet paper symbolizes control. And in our very kind of uh, clinical and, you know, germaphobe kind of world, it's it's seen as the way that we tidy and clean ourselves up. So it's very much uh, in that way extended to the crisis as a way of, you know, keeping clean, despite it not actually achieving that thing or, you know, newspapers existing for generations. Uh, as a foil to that, Brian Cook from the Community Engagement for Disaster Risk and Reduction Project in the University of Melbourne has a suspicion, suspicion that it has to do with people's, how people react to stress. So they want an element of comfort and security. So not so much the tidy up idea, but the idea of comfort. You know, for many Westerners, there is this yuck factor associated with non-toilet paper cleaning. And so a lot of um, the buyers that we've seen have kind of hoarded this in a, in a way to <laughs> shield themselves from, again, this sort of thing. Also, the fact that toilet paper is extraordinarily cheap and accessible and people feel like they're doing something but without a lot of risk, if that makes sense, or a lot of financial risk. So it's interesting, but um, there's been so many different points. Another point I wanted to bring up is this one that I found by Kevin Rhodes on Facebook, which is says, there isn't a shortage of toilet paper. Instead, there are hoarders and opportunists who grab more toilet paper than they need and have stashed it away for their personal use to the detriment of those who need it. And he goes on to extend that to other ways in our society that we've turned incredibly insular and kind of this very me, 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 I need to look after me and my own centric sort of view. And it just points out how much of a brittle system we have. I mean, we are faced with this health crisis and we've all got to get through it together, three CRs, banded up with lots of disinfectants and procedures and policies so that we are looking after our people and social distancing has been recommended. So we we don't need to panic. And it, it's interesting kind of to see how Australia has reacted and uh, as Stan Grant, amongst many others, have said, how poorly they've reacted and often with racism. So, I mean, I was witnessing some of that on the train home the other day and I just think we need to look out for everyone. We need to love everyone. Um, and, yeah, try and avoid these silly things like news, toilet paper, mass buying. It's It's been very absurd. Anyway, touching also on COVID-19, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, and then we'll have an entirely COVID-19-free show because I'm sure everyone's a bit sick of it. Um, I was actually reading an article about how to manage your media consumption around this stuff. So Mike Pearson was writing in the conversation that, um, as I said before, news avoidance has risen among news consumers from 57 to 62% in 2019. Um, but a way of kind of escaping the constant barrage of information is that you can actually, one, first off, switch off, avoid the 24-7 newsreel. I know one of my friends has been constantly hitting updates for the you know health crisis, and it's just been doing absolutely nothing for productivity or a sense of well-being. It just feeds into that paranoia. A second thing is, uh, as suggested, is deep dive. So actually look for long-form conversations or the first kind of articles about this. Don't go for buzz lines or headlines. Try to shut down any commercial news sites that are giving you kind of, you know, those those 10-second bites every five seconds. Uh, the third point was to connect with those you know. So make sure you're looking at your sources. I know, especially, as I said, with the rise of the internet, you've got a lot of fake news, got a lot of sensationalist news out there. So it's about staying critical and making sure you're only taking information from sources that really have authority on the matter. So listening to the doctors would be my recommendation. Uh, they've also suggested sticking on primary sources. So it's like, what is the best source of information I need to know? 
And finally, this one I found really interesting because I hadn't considered it myself, um, was bear in mind if any kids are watching or, you know, what, what your behavior is signaling to those maybe susceptible to, to influence around you. And especially with kids, I mean, I think the, the time frame that we're going through, I know it's definitely shaping behaviors at, from my experience, universities and societies, and it's going to have a lot of repercussions with, I suppose, how people act. And yeah, especially with kids. So I don't know. Those were some interesting five different points about managing your news consumption. And I'd like to look further into this idea of actively thinking about how we consume news because it's just it's such an integral part to what we do. But but a lot of us, I'd agree, and myself included, do it badly. Like you read news until you're exhausted and then you're, you're reading things for the sake of reading things and you're not taking it in. And there's a whole bunch of prestige and, you know, social capital to, you know, if you know the latest headlines. So I don't know. This this different look at how we consume news and how we consume news constructively. So I'll leave you on that. I'm just going to play a song and then we will go into a um, recorded interview by Jan Bartlett from actually last week, so earlier in March. Um, But before that, we're going to have Every Day, Every Day by the beautiful artist Stav.
Wear your Radical Radio colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Call 9419 8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au slash shop. 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts. Get Get one one now. now. Viruses like flu and coronavirus spread when tiny droplets from coughs and sneezes land on surfaces that others touch. You can help reduce this risk by coughing or sneezing into your elbow or upper arm or use a tissue and put the tissue in the bin straight after. Then wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Tree Project are a Melbourne-based organisation that have been replanting Indigenous trees in Victoria for 30 years now. And we need your help. You can become a Tree Project member, a seedling grower in your own backyard, or organise your friends to do a planting day. If you're a landholder in rural Victoria and would like to restore habitat on your land, Tree Project is keen to help out. We also offer sponsorship opportunities and take work teams for a planting day. Visit treeproject.org.au to learn more. A 3CR supporter. And the next up, we'll be listening to Jan Bartlett's uh, interview with uh, Peter Murphy around a few different issues, so the first of which is COVID-19, but further on from that is actually justice for Timor-Leste in terms of access to their greater sunrise oil fields. So uh, to paint the picture, in Timor, 44% of children under five suffer from moderate to severe malnutrition. Timor has one of the most, one of the world's biggest fertility rates. Families average about eight children but also one of the region's highest infant mortality rates of 88 per 1,000 lives births. Australia, by comparison, averages less than 5, 000, 5 per 1,000. So only half the people in rural areas have clean water, and people are killed by all the usual tropical diseases like dengue fever, malaria, and the reaper of weakened kids, obviously diarrhoea. Timor, Timor is also riddled with TB and afflicted by the most ancient and modern of curses, leprosy and HIV-AIDS. Australia is challenging Timor Leste for this oil, and Jan Bartlett and Peter Murphy had a quick conversation about it. Next, I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist, and the issue is Timor Leste. There's a couple of issues: the Greater Sunrise oil fields, and there's also the coronavirus for East Timor. It is a slightly noisy interview because Peter this morning was at the airport in Sydney ready to catch an overseas flight and that was the only time that he was available. So do persevere. It's an important issue for the people of East Timor. So let's hear it from Peter Murphy. There were two events around Greater Sunrise in recent years. One was the delimitation of the border between Australia and Timor-Leste which I think was around uh, May 2018. Then the um, decision by the Timor-Leste government to purchase a majority or a controlling interest in the Greater Sunrise joint venture. They bought out BP and Shell, I think were the two companies. And so the government of Timor-Leste now, through a company, owns about 54% of the joint venture 
and therefore I think in their mind a controlling interest. But the, the terms of the joint venture are that there has to be consensus among the partners before doing anything. So it's sort of still Woodside is the, the third, the other partner still in the joint venture. And Woodside, since all that, have negotiated with the team more or less government for guarantees that they won't suffer any losses due to Timor-Leste taking over control of the development uh, of the field. There was a decision that the guarantees would be by committing the petroleum fund of Timor-Leste to assure Woodside that they would make no losses. So it's all a big gamble because the cost of um, even the onshore processing of the gas as planned by Timor-Leste is about a $16 billion investment and the, the petroleum fund is about $16 billion. Then the uh, Timor-Leste government has now taken on 54% of the cost of developing the field itself. So it's, you know, I would say a very high-risk pathway and I think that the recent Fretland conference in, in Dili you know, passed a significant resolution you know, about that situation. One other aspect of the treaty between Australia and Timor-Leste on, on the seabed boundary was that it, it included a, uh, an agreement that Australia owned a significant portion of, of the Greater Sunrise Gas Field. So that, you, when you actually look at the map, it doesn't make much sense to the eye, but I think that was a political compromise made basically by Shanana Gusmao, who led the negotiations. So uh, politically speaking, it's, uh, it's interesting because Shanana has now dissolved his own government. His party, CNRT, is having some kind of dispute with the Popular Liberation Party, led by the current acting Prime Minister, Tao Matanrua. So despite all of these really dramatic gestures about Greater Sunrise and developing that gas field, Somehow or other, it wasn't enough for uh, Shanana Bushmau. So now there's a sort of a high level of uncertainty about what kind of government will be formed for the remainder of the term of this parliament. And the parliament should operate up till 2023. Uh, if, if they can't form a government that's stable, then uh, there would have to be another election, which will be the third election since 2017, within you know, what should have been one term of the parliament. What does Guzmao actually want in all of this? You know, it's very hard to actually perceive his goal. There's some one part of me looks to the psychology of it, but somehow or other he hasn't, he hasn't really got the respect he thinks he deserves as a sort of uh, symbol of national liberation. Uh, that could be part of it. But there'd, there'd be... Because we're talking about so many, many billions of dollars here... There's probably, you know, there's probably some kind of economic motivation going on, but it's hard to say what it is because you know, the government has actually passed all the proposals he made about the development of the gas field. So there's just something going on there. Like uh, one of the details of the problem with the last government, the one that recently resigned or collapsed, is that the CNRT had made nine nominations for members of the cabinet back in. 2018, the president, who is from Fredland, the name is Luwolo, rejected those nine on the grounds that it would, there was a, he had to uphold the integrity of the government 
and the Constitution. So it's a sort of very broad reference to problems of uh, corruption in the behaviour or the records of those nine nominated people. Since then, the numbers whittled down to about five, but it seems that Shanana Kushmau feels that he must have those five individuals in the government, otherwise there won't be a government. So I think uh, we're yet to see how that will actually pan out because the president's still there until 2022. So there is a sort of a setting here for a very clear sort of standoff or battle of will about what's really right and wrong in the makeup of a new government. How is all this impacting on the people themselves in East Timor or Timor-Leste? I'm not really sure, except that it's a sort of economic setback. Under the, under the Constitution, if the budget is rejected, which is how the government was brought down, then the, the budget of the previous 12 months divided into 12 parts and spent month by month that way. And uh, that means there's no new programs and as, as um, have some programs uh, wound up, they can't be replaced. So there is a sort of a slowdown, really, of uh, government-supported economic activity, and the government is a very important driver of economic activity in Timor less. So there's that uh, side of it, and you know the people are basically pretty poor, and you know this will just add pressure in their lives. I think that they've seen it all before, and there's an expression of frustration you know, that the politicians can't get the country going forward properly. I think uh, they've seen Shimana just now uh, be the principal actor in these things for a few episodes now. So I think uh, the frustration is with him. But I think there's also a level of fear because Shimana just now is somehow pushed too far or gets too frustrated then there's a danger of uh, violence and uh, destruction uh, and people have really, really had enough of that. So uh, they do tolerate a lot of bad behaviour from the politicians in order to avoid something worse. And into this mix comes the COVID-19 virus. Yes, I think uh, lucky for Timor that, uh, you know, it's relatively small, 1.4 million people, I think, Timor less, and uh, they've got the border with Indonesia where I think that uh, a lot of people realise that COVID-19 is a bit on the rampant side. But they don't have that many interactions of flights and visitors and so on from, you know, Europe, uh, even from China. There is a Chinese workforce there, but they tend to be living in their own barracks, building roads and things like that. So Timor could could manage to control the spread of the virus. But the truth is that if it got going, their health system is very weak. It wouldn't really cope with a lot of cases of people needing hospital treatment. So there were two decisions that the Fredland seem to have advertised. One saying that they want to review the treaty with Australia and they want serious, in-depth studies of the economics of the projects which uh, Janana Gushmau is pushing for greater sunrise. So I think that's a very significant initiative about the border because Fredland is really challenging the national liberation credentials of Shanana Gushmau by making that statement and it will annoy the Australian government but uh, I think I think there's such a huge huge gamble underway now about the greater sunrise gas fields that uh, it's very important that some organized political voice in, in Timor-Leste has called for a more sober approach 
And also the fact that Shanana seems to flit in and out of the country when he feels like it. Yes, I mean, he's often, most of the time, out of the country. Uh, he just returned, I think, 10 days ago from a reasonably lengthy stay away. So, yes, it's um, again, this is one of those things that um, people will tolerate a lot. But, you know, from the outside, it doesn't look good that um, a leader who, who really still controls the, the sort of political direction of the country, even from the back room, is so absent, you know, so little uh, actually speaking and discussing with people in Timor. So in the near future, are we likely to see Timor isolating themselves, keeping the borders closed? Yes, I think that I think we should expect that since it's happening all around the world, you know, international travel is is grinding to a halt, and uh, you know, Timor could easily uh, manage to take part in that exercise and, and then review the situation in three weeks' time or one month's time, and so on. Yeah. We should expect that. Just finally, Peter, another concern is for for you is is the Philippines. What's the situation there with the virus? There was a lot of uh, light-hearted comments from the government for a while about the, the virus, but people people obviously were very frightened. And, and last week there was a declaration that all of Metro Manila would be shut down for a month. So it's a total attempt by the government to control movement in and out of the city, and people have been told to stay home. And uh, there are actually a lot of soldiers and police on the street, armoured um, cars and uh, so on. So the uh, people, I think, are really, really frustrated with this because it's a sort of show of government presence and strength, but there is very little testing available. Uh, people who are feeling ill are having trouble getting help. And um, if they approach police, they, they often get harassed. So, because I think the police don't know what to do actually about COVID-19 either. We're actually seeing the use of the military and police in, in Metro Manila on top of a pretty severe repressive operation against critics of the government in the media, um, in the trade unions, in the legal profession, in the churches. So most people, I think, are interpreting the crackdown in Metro Manila as a really a security operation and all feeling pretty Okay, Peter, thank you. Okay, Jan. And that was Jan Bartlett speaking with Peter Murphy. Now, you can catch more of Jan on uh, 3cr.org.au slash hometime Tuesday. So it's, the show is called Tuesday Hometime. I just read out the webpage. Sorry for the mix-up uh, way of saying that. Uh, but Jan Bartlett creates just some amazing content, so well worth checking that out. And that was just obviously around COVID-19 and also justice for Timor-Leste in terms of accessing to um, access to the Greater Sunrise oil fields and Australia's continuation to challenge uh, Timor-Leste over ownership of the gas field. Now, next up, we're going to have an oldie but a goodie, uh, Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell, and then we'll be into our first interview for the day. Hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? It pays paradise, put up a parking lot. Ooh, bop, 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 bop. 
dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Late last night, I heard the screen door slam. And a big yellow taxi took away my old man. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise. Up a parking lot. I said, Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. And you're listening to 3CR. We're coming up to 7.32 in our first interview. So we're going to be looking now at city and urban design, influence and well-being. And to talk more about this, we have Professor Billy Giles Corty um, on air, who is a distinguished professor at RMIT University and director of its Urban Futures Enabling Capability Platform. She is a national health and medical research, part of the National Health and Medical Research Council, short as HRMRC, and a senior principal research fellow um, that helps direct the Centre for Urban Research, Healthy Livable Cities Research Group at RMIT's Centre for Urban Research. That's a very long title. Good morning, <laughs> Professor Billy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no problems. Um, Rob, of course, my co-presenter, helped organise this interview, and uh, I, I love it. He's put down absolutely everything you're involved in, which is great. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, to start off, kind of broadly speaking, how does city and urban design influence our well-being? Well, it influences in many ways. For example, it tells it, if we depending on how we design our cities, we can walk, we can cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it determines whether or not we interact with one another. You know, I know that's a tricky issue right now, but you know, having a cafe on the corner makes a big difference to the local mm-hmm. community. If you can just walk down to a local cafe and walk to shops and services, and you run into people that you know at the shops. Um, so they, it helps us in many ways because all those interactions are really good for our mental health. So, you know, from a physical health perspective, from a, from a um, uh, mental health perspective, the way we design our cities makes a big difference. And, of course, if there's lots of pollution, um, that's also bad for our health. You know, they, mm. they, they say now that air pollution is the new smoking. So, you know, if we've got lots of cars, you know, near our homes, near our schools, near our old um, aged care facilities, is putting pollution into those places. And so it's incredibly important that we protect people by getting the cars out of from where people are mm. uh, and reducing that exposure. Absolutely. And, and touching on kind of what we are going through right now and seeing the rise of non-communicable diseases within our cities, um, how can city planning and urban design introduce preventative care strategies to curb this non-communicable uh, communicable disease crisis that we're seeing? Yeah, well, I guess we've got 
In terms of what we're seeing now, we've got two types of diseases. We've got infectious disease, which is mm. what COVID is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an infectious disease. And then we've got non-communicable diseases. Now, non-communicable are the, you know, like uh, diabetes, mm. cardiovascular disease, these diseases, and they are preventable. That They are largely preventable. And so the way we design our cities can make a huge difference in terms of, you know, getting people to be more physically active. Um, and as I talked about, you know, getting people to socially interact mm. You know, it just protects our health, and that's a really important role for cities. But now that we've got the infectious diseases, that's also important, of course, because, you know, where we've got wide footpaths, for example, in the inner city where people can walk in the mm. city and not bump into one another, this is, this is really important. And so, you know, this, the efforts that are being taken here in Melbourne uh, by the city of Melbourne to give more street back to the, back to the pedestrians mm. Um, and take the cars out is so important because there's so many people interacting. So um, that means that it makes it safer for people. You don't, you're not bumping into one another. Um, crowding, of course, was what where a lot of the infectious diseases were um, were uh, uh, when people were exposed in crowded situations. That was really what the big issues were in the turn of the century, last century. Um, and so that's you know largely being dealt with now. But, of course, then if you make it too low density, as we're mm. seeing here in Australia, that's really bad for us as well because that right. just means everyone has to drive. So from a climate perspective, mm-hmm. uh, from a healthy climate perspective, um, you know, driving everywhere is not the solution. So it, there's a midpoint. And, you know, we've got a, a part to pay in making sure that people are not too crowded but equally that people are not too uh, spread out. And this is, sorry, uh, just listening to some of the um, ideas, you know, giving the streets back to people and stuff like that. Uh, My own personal question about Melbourne, uh, I was reading an article which was comparing Melbourne's design versus Canberra design, and the argument they were making is Melbourne works in a grid-like pattern, so you very much walk from A to B, whereas Canberra works in circles, so you're kind of more forced to meander and by that way kind of socially interact with people and that sort of stuff. Would you kind of say that also comes into, like, city design and how we... Like how we, as you said, transport people and the, the, the um, feelings or moods that they take with that. Yeah, Melbourne is a beautiful design. Mm. You know, we should be doing that everywhere. You know, you've got, you can have the shortest routes, you can take a longer route because you can go different, you know, different routes. But mm-hmm. if you're in a hurry, you can take a short route in Melbourne because of the grid design. It is beautiful. <laughs> it's, I call it, it's got beautiful bones, is what I, how I put it. <laughs> <laughs> it's got beautiful bones and, and there's so much you can do. It's flexible over time. It changes, you know, depending on what the situation was. You know, it was built, you know, two hundred years ago, and now it's now it's, you know, very functional in the twenty first century as well. So, this inner city of Melbourne is, is beautiful. Um, Canberra is a car based city. Right. Um, it's yep. got nice, nice little neighbourhood centres, which you know may well encourage people to meander in there, mm-hmm. but it's all very spread out, and the only way you can really get around the city is by driving. Right. Um, and so. You know, it's got its own set of problems, even though it's got, you know, lots of greenery. Mm. Um, but it's a big country town. It's 200,000 or 300,000 people. Melbourne's population will double by 2050. Mm. Gotcha. So, you know, we couldn't have a city like Canberra, and we probably wouldn't want to. It, it's got its own set of problems, which means that it, you have to drive there, um, yeah, yeah. as opposed to Melbourne, where, you, where we have got a fabulous public transport system, at least in the inner city. Uh, mm. it's, it's wonderful. Mm, absolutely. And I, I suppose if you, we have to tailor our thoughts to each city. Um, so do strategies to improve urban design uh, and to improve public health, uh, health outcomes, have they, um, 
Have, do they have to arise from councils and governments or can locals and community groups also contribute to shaping their city? I think lo- local people and the community is really critical because you know, I talk about this thing. I've been talking about this now for 20, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it's only when the public get on and start to demand it that actually that things, because they talk, they influence politicians. Now we've got policies in place now that are saying that we need to move to a 20 minute neighbourhood uh, in Melbourne, oh. which is a fantastic concept because it's like that you would be able to walk to everything that you need within a 20 minute walk there and right. back. So it's really, it's a 10 minute city. Um, mm-hmm. So things within 10 minutes. Now, if we could achieve that, a city of villages, it would be fantastic. Now, the, the quickest way we can fast-track that is for the public to demand that. So the community is really important. Now, what we see, though, is often what happens with the community is that, you know, any change, everyone says, oh, we don't want to change that. Mm. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's so equally why the community can help cha- change things, the community can actually stop things from occurring. Yeah. Yeah. and hinder a progress. And yeah. that's really important that we... And I'm not suggesting that we don't try and get this right. I am totally committed to that. And mm-hmm. all my research is trying to say, well, how do we maximise the health benefit and minimise any harms? Because I think that's a really quite important question. But most definitely the community is really an important part of this to demand that we get um, cities that, um, that can prepare us. We're seeing right now we need to be more resilient. You know, we're so mm. dependent on so many things that, um, with, uh, you know, the bike is, the bike is really showing a renaissance here, which is fantastic yeah, because definitely. the bike means that we can get around, we can still move and we're still, we're still, we've got physical distance from people, but we can mm. still move around. It's such a resilient form of transportation. So, uh, we need to have things close enough we can cycle. So, you know, I think that's the, the beauty of the public is that we can, we can actually demand and want, you know, evidence-based policy and policy that's going to produce a better city. Fantastic. And another theory I've I've got here to raise is kind of this. Uh, another theory that's really grown in popularity is this idea of um, biophilia, which is the for those in the audience who aren't sure, uh, is the humans possess an innate tendency to seek connections with nature and other forms of life. With this theory, can it improve our well-being within cities and urban design? Yeah, well, there's a lot of research actually was done um, by, I think, the American researchers, the Kaplan um, husband and wife team, and they found that, you know, people who are exposed to nature, it it reduced mental fatigue, Mm. it reduced stress, and they compared people who sat and read a magazine and relaxed and those who walked through, you know, nature, and they found that, you know, people just did better. They felt better, they Mm. felt less aggressive. You know, so many benefits. So, and there's also been studies that show that when people are in hospitals and they're exposed to, you know, they look out on a window um, that's got nature, they recover more quickly. They use less drugs. Um, so that, you know, it's really good for the health system as well. So I think there is this innate idea that um, that people do really relate to nature. And actually, in Japan, they have uh, forest bathing. People who go and Hang out in nature, and the idea is to you know smell the fragrances, to you know see the you know the visual feast that nature can offer, to hear the beautiful sounds, the birds, uh, you know to taste um, the taste that you can taste when you're you know in this beautiful you know you get that sense mm-hmm. of freshness in the, yeah. in a forest, and then to feel how beautiful it is. So you know there's a there's a whole um, literature now suggesting mm. that uh, supporting this idea of biophilia that we have this innate. Uh, connection to nature. 
I mean, absolutely. It's so important that we protect it, actually. That's the thing. We need to protect it. Mm, I was going to say, after this show, I'm actually going up to uh, Belgrave in the hills because it's kind of like that reconnecting point of like, oh, I need to get back into some nature (laughs) after being in the bustle. Exactly. You only Mm. have to see how how devastated people were to see the loss of of nature and and animals during the fires. You know, you can just see, you know, it was heart-wrenching and really made people realise that, you know, climate change is real and it's important and we need to act. Absolutely. And now we have touched on non-communicable diseases, but um, just touching on viruses and the spread of them in, within cities, what are some strategies we are sitting city, cities um, consider developing or adopting to help contain future outbreaks? Well, I mean, we've got a lot of those things. They're all basic public health mm-hmm. um, but measures. Um, but, you know, obviously crowding. Um, I think, you know, the pressures that people are on in terms of housing affordability, when we see in the city we've seen, you know, lots of students living in apartments because they they don't, they can't afford rent. So obviously housing affordability is a big one because we mm. need to avoid crowd, avoid crowding. We can, you know, design our cities so that we are not haven't got crowding. But we also need right. to think about, you know, the behaviours of people because of the cost of, 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 of housing. Um, you know, the wider footpaths, you know, having good ventilation. You know, we've got basic, you know, building. We've learned from the, the turn of last century to know that we have to build our buildings in a certain way to maximise ventilation, fresh air, that sort of thing. Um, so these are all the important things in terms of, you know, presenting um, uh, the spread of infectious diseases. Mm. Uh, I'm not an infectious disease expert, so but I know that, you know, some of the things that we did in the building code were contributing factors to trying with that that thought in mind that how do we protect people mm. so that they're not so um, not so crowded not so crowded fantastic and finally um, I just wanted to know how do you think good city planning and urban design has helped you live a healthier life and improved your well-being oh, <laughs> I big am, question I am <laughs> I am completely privileged though I mean I am. Mm. You know, I, I work at, in the city, I work at RMIT University, mm. and I live in Fitzroy, and I'm able to walk to work every day. Oh, um, you know, I've got a cafe on the corner, I'm, I've got Brunswick Street, I've got all the shops nearby, I can <laughs> walk to everything. Um, I feel completely privileged. And what I love about where I live is, you know, I've got all the main streets with all the traffic, but I live in a minor road, and it's quiet. It's relatively quiet. It's not like I'm, you know, I am in the city, but... I do live in a quiet neighbourhood, right? You know, three kilometres from the CBD. I mean, and I've got I've got public transport, three different um, public transport services that I can use to get into the city. I am completely privileged. Mm. What my hope is that, and what I, my dream is that we can replicate some of this fabric, not just in the inner city, but in outer suburban areas where people can have enjoy some of the benefits of a of uh, close shops and services nearby where they can walk to everything and uh, where there's a lot of people now talking about how we can create walkable urbanism in the burbs. Um, I really, really like that idea. It's not for everyone, but it is for some, and I think that that's something we should be working towards. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, um, Professor Billy, for joining us today on the show and coming on and talking about this massive area. I think we don't think about design and city and what our spaces shaped uh, like, like are, but they have such huge impacts on our lives. So I always find it absolutely fascinating to learn more about how we, how we need to yeah, be shaping these spaces that we interact with constantly. <laughs> we do. And I'd be happy to talk to you any time. It's a really big topic. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
And you're listening to 3CR now. We just were touching on city design and well-being. Well, we're skipping over to now, um, I suppose, same sort of like environment, different form of environment. We'll be talking to Scott Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation about the current situation in the Tarkeen Forest region in Tasmania. Now, the Bob Brown Foundation, for all those of you who don't know, aims to protect various land environments, wildlife and marine ecosystems in Tasmania and around Australia within our region. The Bob Brown Foundation has been working tirelessly to protect the nation's largest temperate forest, the Tarkeen, from logging. Last time we spoke, Sustainable Timbers Tasmania was preparing to log the Tarkeen, while Tarkeen defenders stood ground the Kew River area in the Tarkeen. The campaign by the Bob Brown Foundation has been defending the area since 2017 and way before that, and continues to camp in the Sumac Ridge whilst continuing to defend against logging. Now, this is a story that Jess has been following, and this is her story. So we've got uh, Scott on today to talk to us more. Good morning, Scott. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Could you give us a quick update on what's happening, what the situation is as of today? Look, as of today, we continue to hold our protest camp in the Sumac Ridge area of the Tarkon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, um, over the last couple of months, had um, activity in the, in the Kew River area of the Tarkon and the, the Pyman River area, mm-hmm. um, and we've had teams... Um, in those areas, um, up in trees and, and um, locking onto machines and, and doing what they needed to do to, mm. to prevent that logging and, and we're able to um, successfully see the loggers off in those areas. And um, we, we continue that presence now in the, in the sumac where we've been for a couple of years now mm. to prevent them moving into this area to push roads in that will allow of these beautiful ancient rainforests. Mm, absolutely. And I was just going to mention, these rainforests are absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just these huge trees, this huge protected forest, um, parts of which have not been explored or, you know, discovered or capitalised on. Now, obviously, this is an extended protest and, and activism kind of thing. How have the spirits of the defenders been since the last time we spoke? Because obviously this is a very, very exhausting thing to continue doing. Yeah, look, it, it definitely um, has been a big month for us. Mm. Um, but there, there's nothing that warms your spirits more than a bit of a victory. And so we've, mm. um, we've successfully seen the loggers out of two coops that they, they'd planned to, to lock. Um, well, we, we, yeah, they obviously got some area logged in those spaces. Um, in, the, in the Kew River area, mm. they left... Um, you know, with, with less than half of what they were planning to get. And in the Pyman River area, um, they, you know, less than 10% of what they'd, they'd planned to get. And so um, we, you know, we're feeling pretty good about the fact that there's a, there's a whole lot of rainforest in those Still areas standing mm. because of the efforts of, Ab- of the, yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's fantastic to also... Um, to share those victories because we do not hear them in mainstream media. I mean, this sort of thing is not being covered. And the fact that you are sustaining a, you know, a people's protest and it is having success, I think, is really important to highlight. Um, the, the, these tactics do work. 
I wanted to turn your attention to a, a quote and ask you a bit about a quote you um, have previously, previously released on Bob Brown's uh, platforms, which is, if Premier Gutwin is serious about turning around this government's record on climate change, he would immediately intervene to spare the rainforest, um, rainforest of Tarkin. And that would be showing real leadership. Uh, Tasmania was hopeful for a more sustainable environmental uh, path under Premier of, you know, Gutwin coming into power. Has the government made any progress in reaching out or assisting with this campaign, or ha- has it made any change in politics? No, unfortunately they haven't. We've we've seen rhetoric from uh, Premier Gutwin around um, taking on the issue of climate change, yet we're seeing nothing on the ground. Um, mm. Here we have forests that are some of the most carbon dense on the planet, and and we're we're seeing this government committed to continuing against the logby area. Mm. Um, this this premier is great on the talk, but he's not so good on the walk. Right. So there's a huge political disconnect. Absolutely, and mm. um, yeah, it's it's clear what he needs to do, um, mm. but he seems to want to just talk about it. Right. Okay. And what would be what would be the ideal piece of policy or um, infrastructure, I suppose, to combat what's currently happening in the logging? Like, is that is that a necessary a law or regulation? What what are you guys really campaigning as a def a definite action? Well, for a start, yeah, we'd like to see the Tarkbone protected as a national park. Right. Um, um, we've looked for this area and um, put forward for. World Heritage listing. Mm-hmm. The area has been assessed numerous times and and actually meets seven of the ten criteria for World Heritage listing. Um, only two other places on the planet um, have seven of the ten criteria. To be listed as a World Heritage property, you, you only need to meet one criteria. Uh, and so the Tarkine well exceeds uh, what it needs for that mm. and, and should be protected. Um, but beyond that, we believe that the needs to step up and follow the example of, of um, his Victorian counterpart and, and make an end to all native forest logging. Um, this is an industry that's well past its day and in the climate change world, uh, we can't afford to be losing these, these amazing carbon banks. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I suppose the question, you know, from the studio in Melbourne is where do we go from here and also how can our listeners get involved? Uh, do you suggest involving yourself with the Bob Brown Foundation or can we get uh, more generally involved? Look, absolutely. We we, um, we suggest people make contact with their, their um, federal MPs mm-hmm. and put pressure on, on the federal government to intervene to protect the Tarkine. This is an area that that could be national heritage listed um, if, the, if the federal government was to make the decision to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's already been assessed as having those values. Um, people can certainly assist us through through donating to the Bob Brown Foundation. Um, these campaigns do take um, considerable amount of funds and, and um, our ability to be out here um, taking these actions you know, depends on us having the, the resources to be able to do that. Um, and, and ordinarily, I'd tell people to to come and visit the area and and see it for themselves. And mm. um, um, it's it's a, an amazing place that people really should witness. Um, and you can't help but um, enter these forests and um, be moved by them and and, and want to get out and protect them. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us uh, on, today, this morning. Uh, because Jess has been following the story, I'm sure we will get you on to keep an updating on this on this story, as it's so important to follow it as it continues and follow you know what's happening with authorities and loggers and protesters. So thank you very much for coming on this morning. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. And that was Scott Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation talking about the current system situation in the Tarkeen Forest. Now, Jess has also listed that you can actually look for latest updates uh, via the Twitter, uh, Bob Brown's Twitter account, which is twitter.com forward slash Bob Brown FNDN for short for foundation. Um, and that way, yeah, you can, you can know what's happening as the story progresses. Obviously, we will still be covering it heavily on Wednesday as well, so you can also ring in for um, or listen in for weekly updates. Now, before, I didn't actually introduce the song. We actually had Girl from the Wheelers of Oz just before that interview, and now we're going to have a little bit of Thelma Plum with How Much Does Your Love Cost? And we'll be back at 8 o'clock for um, Dr. Patricia Reynolds.
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here with us, uh, Aboriginal Radio, and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things on And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, helping, giving us a chance to do this It's really good, you know It's been going for a while now Hopefully it goes, it keeps going You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this And um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. And it is 8.03. We're going to go into our next interview um, with Dr. Patricia Runnell today. So before we get into that, I wanted to kind of paint a bit of an image for this this interview. Now, we all have the image of Scott Morrison at the Pacific Islands Forum standing deliberately deaf as students and leaders alike highlighted the current climate crisis and kind of tried to appeal to him. Australia t- decided to try and meet this problem by throwing money at it with Morrison's announcement of a $500 million um, package in climate resilience and adaption for the Pacific region. In response, Tuvalu's Prime Minister, Inel Sopkara, said no matter how much money you put on the table, it doesn't give you the excuse to not do the right thing, which is cut down your emissions, including not opening your coal mines. Now, that was a pretty clear message, and it also signalled how terrible relations have become between Australia and its neighbours. We have Dr Patricia Ronald, um, who is a convener at the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, in studio, or on the phone I should say, to discuss more about these relationships, but through the prism of trade, as tensions grow in Australia and regional parties with the lack of movement in the PACER agreement. Good morning, Dr Patricia. Good morning. Good morning. Um, the PACER, the Pacific Agreement on Closer Economic Relations Plus... <laughs> Uh, treaty was concluded in April 2017 and it's been going on uh, negotiations have been going on since 2009 could you kind of outline for us uh, what the significance is of this agreement and how it favours Australia's and positions its neighbours well it was originally intended to be between Australia and 14 Pacific Island countries um, but the Pacific Island countries were never very keen on it that's why it took nine years to negotiate because basically Being former colonies, they already have um, zero tariff access for their exports Mm. into Australia. The purpose of this agreement was to get them to reduce their tariffs and also to reduce regulation of investment for Australia and New Zealand investment going into um, the Pacific Islands. So the agreement essentially benefits Australia and New Zealand in increasing their exports and their investment. Uh, and um, basically, Pacific Island countries have been worried that the uh, impact of having lower tariffs and less controls on investment will not bring benefits to them. 
And the reason is that the theory of, about trade benefits says that, yes, you lose some jobs through reducing your tariffs, etc., but, um, you know, you can develop new industries. Uh, this will give a boost to your economy because it will make it more competitive. But right. Pacific Island countries are very small. Mm. Um, they have high transport costs. They are mostly farming and fishing economies. And even the World Bank has said that just by reducing uh, tariffs and investment barriers won't necessarily, it might destroy local industries, but it won't necessarily result in the growth of new industries. Mm. So that's what they're worried about, that this agreement will actually cause um, local industries to die but uh, not produce um, new employment. And just just touching on the idea of removal of tariffs and the lack of government control, I mean, I'm suspicious of free trade agreements on the best of days, but the consequences of this agreement are far-reaching for those countries. Could you kind of give us an idea of those, how those little economies or, or those eco- different economies would react to a free trade agreement such as suggested in the PACER? Well, the other issue for them is that they have very few sources of government revenue and tariffs or taxes on imports are often over 10% of their government revenue. So if they lose that revenue, um, then that could have an impact on the government um, income that they have to Mm. spend on things like health and education. Now, what Australia and New Zealand have been saying is, oh, you can just replace them and introduce a goods and services tax like we have in Australia. But, of course, uh, (laughs) those, those taxes work in Australia because most people do buy things in the cash economy, but they're also regressive. Low-income people spend more of their income, so they, it's a higher proportion of tax. So, But studies have shown that you can't replace tariffs, you, um, tariff income uh, completely by those sorts of taxes, and in any case, they are very unfair because mm-hmm. they impact most on low-income people. But they particularly probably won't work in the Pacific Islands where there, there are still a lot of non-cash transactions. Um, so um, the, there was actually a government inquiry into this trade agreement after it was completed uh, by the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties and even that committee, which was a, dom- a government-dominated committee, um, recommended, expressed concern about um, the possible impact on government revenues and um, recommended that um, there be independent evaluation of mm. what what impacts the agreement as a whole, but particularly the loss of government revenue would have on those economies. Gotcha. And you said that it was supposed to be originally done with 14 other parties in mind. Um, a lot of states have signed it, but very few have ratified it, making the agreement non-binding. What is the mood in the room about the agreement for a lot of different, like, key states in this? Well, I think the key sort of symptom of the failure of this agreement is that the two largest economies, CG and PNG, which together form over 80% of total economic output of the Pacific Islands, haven't even signed it. And they, the reason they gave was that it didn't meet their development objectives and they were worried about the impact on their local industries and, and industries that they were trying to develop. Um, Nine governments did sign it, um, but only two have ratified it. Only Kiribati and Samoa have ratified it. And it can't come into force until 
eight countries altogether have ratified it. Mm. So, so far there's Australia, New Zealand, Samoa and Kiribati. So, pretty, to me, pretty bad. <laughs> and, and, we, and we're talking yeah. three years after the agreement is completed. Yeah. So, um, again, um, the government-dominated inquiry, which looked at the agreement, said that, you know, this is not really an effective regional agreement when the two largest economies haven't even signed it. Mm. And three years later, they still haven't signed it. Pretty dead in the water. Uh, so, yeah. uh, well, the Australian government is still pressing um, right. these governments to uh, both sign and ratify. Um, it's interesting that PNG and Fiji, the other two largest economies, they're probably less dependent on Australian government aid than some of the very small economies. Um, there's a lot of pressure that goes on, mm. um, as you mentioned in your introduction. Um, there's been a lot of, um, you know, if you sign up to that, you'll get more aid kind yeah, of yeah. pressure going on. Um, and I think that, quite frankly, this doesn't improve relationships mm. Um and, of course, the Australian government is very concerned now um, in the last couple of years about China's influence in the Pacific. Mm. Um, and, um, again, a lot of commentators have said that if the Australian government continues to have a tin ear about listening to the concerns of the Pacific about climate change and pushing them into a trade agreement, which basically they've never been that interested in and don't think will benefit them, mm. then obviously the relationships are going to deteriorate mm. and you'll leave space for other players to come in and uh, that is what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, and touching on that, I, I mean, Australia's unwillingness to act on climate change and also, I mean, as part of this part of this PACER agreement it is said that there's $50 million in developmental assistance and I have to say I share your scepticism with whether that's necessarily the best because we have had a lot of critique coming out of um, foreign aid of it kind of money being thrown at a country but not really put into the systems and not really listening to the people that they're giving money or development assistance to to actually create constructive change. It, would that be a fair assessment? Well, I think there are some good aid programs um, and there are some bad ones. Mm. Um, under the current government, the emphasis has been on the aid program being um, a benefit for Australian business mm. <laughs> as much as for the recipients of aid. But um, So I'm not saying there shouldn't be more aid, but one no, no. of the key things about the PACER agreement is that the, there is a package to implement the agreement. Mm. That money is coming out of the existing aid budget. So it right. won't go into things like health and education. Gotcha. Um, since the concern about China, there have been a number of additional aid programs announced. Um, and certainly um, I think there's been um, behind the scenes a lot of connecting of that to um, signing up to Place a Plus, although we can't, you know... This goes on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I do think that, uh, again, with the aid program, what the Australian government needs to do is really listen to um, voices in each um, government and, and to they should be consulting also with non-government and community organisations about um, programs that will really address 
development needs mm. and poverty alleviation. I mean, uh, I think there's four countries in the Pacific Islands who are least developed countries. Uh, that means they're at the bottom of the social ladder in terms of levels of income, income inequality and so on. Mm. So um, there's a lot of positive stuff that could be done in the Pacific Islands. Mm. But... Um, I think the fact that the Australian government has initiated four different parliamentary inquiries now this year, one on trade, one on defence, one on aid and development and one on gender relationships mm -hmm. in the Pacific, shows that the government itself now realises that um, it needs to review its attitudes towards the Pacific and to... Um, we hope that the, that these inquiries will be an opportunity for the government to actually listen uh, to research and to Pacific Islanders themselves mm. saying what what their priorities are and then the Australian government can respond to those priorities. And the Australian Fair Trade and Invest, um, sorry, Investment Network has been kind of focusing on this story. What can we do to, I suppose, support better policy around this, the trade negotiations in this area? Well, there's a number of things you could do. You could just send a message to the Trade Minister nice. <laughs> saying listen to the Pacific Islands. Simple. Um, I love it. We're, we're, um, uh, our network of 60 community organisations is making a submission to the government. The government inquiries are on the um, government parliamentary website. They're inquiries by the joint... Uh, Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Committee. So if you want to make a short submission, you can write a letter to, the, to that inquiry mm -hmm. um, or to one of those inquiries. There's four of them. Um, and um, a number of community organisations in Australia who work with the Pacific Islands are um, making submissions. So um, uh, we hope to get some publicity and community debate around these things. For instance, the Whitlam Institute has just done a big uh, survey in the Pacific Islands where they actually spoke to um, representatives of uh, communities, local governments, grassroots people in the Pacific about what their priorities were. And that, uh, I understand that they're going to present that survey um, as a submission to the inquiries. So um, we hope that by generating some debate and um, uh, presenting the, the inquiry with real information that um, this will have an impact. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for joining us this morning. Thank you. And now we're going to listen to Fact or Fiction by the Bipolar Pairs and come back in for our last interview of the day. All I could do was try to mimic While the sun hit its fears And the rain fell down Like tears Can't tell what's fact or fiction Lost in the clouds of my addiction Harsh light of late night kitchen No diagnosis of my affliction Left home from my volition Couldn't stand the state Gone no 
And that was Fact or Fiction by the Bipolar Bears, which is a pretty cool, I don't know, I'm, I was enjoying the beat in the background. We're coming into our final interview today, and this is following on from Jess's alternative news last week, which I'll give you a kind of a re-update. It was the US's signing of a historic agreement with the Taliban that sets Washington and its NATO allies on a path to withdraw the military forces from Afghanistan after more than 18 years of unceasing conflict. Now, negotiations are hoped to be had between the Taliban and the Afghan government to work towards a kind of a complete ceasefire and a new political roadmap for the country. However, with the Afghan government absent from peace deal conversations, many fear that the protection of human rights in Afghanistan, especially for women and minority groups who have been suppressed and persecuted by the Taliban, uh, could occur. In fact, the, on reflection, the agreement does seem to be almost rushed for what is a very complex set of relations and problems. Now we have Dr. Nima Matala Ibrahani, International Relations Lecturer at La Trobe, to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Um, to start off with, could you kind of give us a brief update on the situation of uh, kind of this, Afghan, the, the, this deal and where it is at the moment? Uh well, I think as you outlined, uh, there was this deal signed between the United States and the Taliban uh, on the 29th of February in Doha. Mm-hmm. Uh, the deal uh, had included um, uh, a number of um, provisions which were to be implemented by the Taliban and the U.S., um, as part of the deal, the U.S. has already um, announced that they have begun withdrawing um, some forces from the country. Mm-hmm. And the Taliban has also, uh, according to all reports, ceased attacking the U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. However, the bigger part of the deal, uh, which was... Um, um, this idea that a deal between the Taliban and the U.S. would lead to uh, negotiations between the Afghan government and other Afghan political groups and the Taliban hasn't made any progress. And one of the reasons for that is that the U.S. had agreed in the document with the Taliban that they would secure the release of up to 5,000 prisoners who are held in Afghan prisons. Uh, and those prisons are obviously under the control and authority of the Afghan government, and the Afghan government was not party to that negotiation. Right. And it is the main leverage the Afghan government uh, has when it comes to negotiating a deal with the Taliban, and it has been reluctant to uh, just release 5,000 combatants back to the field without having any guarantee that these guys would not go back to begin fighting again. Mm. So it's, yeah. it's, yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you very much for doing that because it is this extraordinarily complex situation and, the, it, yeah, it, it takes yeah. a lot of different components to be kind of aware of. Um, yeah. Why are NATO and allies like Australia endorsing this, uh, endorsing this agreement when it clearly has so many issues going on? Uh, well, I think, you know, as you said, um, this war has been going on in Afghanistan for a very long period of time, mm-hmm. 18 after 19 years. And that is obviously the international Western perspective on that one war. Uh, it is, I think America's longest war, probably Australia's longest war too. 
But from the perspective of the Afghan population, it is 40 years of war, four decades of war. So this is like one phase in a series of continuous conflict in the country. Mm. Having said that, I think the international uh, support uh, and public opinion is not always, uh, has not been very favorable to continuing involvement in the war in Afghanistan. Uh, in, in the U.S., um, President Trump, uh, in 2016, in his election, he campaigned around this idea of bringing our troops back home, or this idea of ending this endless war. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of these other countries, including Australia, um, they also, uh, even if they have concerns with regards to human rights, the situation of women mm-hmm. in the country, uh, they are usually dependent on U.S. Um, political and military support to be in, in the country. Uh, so if the U.S. sees um, plans to withdraw from the country, the security infrastructure that the U.S. provides for other countries to operate will also be more difficult and constrained. Mm. And so as a result of this, a lot of other countries would also like to yeah, support this. Mm-hmm. And in your opinion, the West, uh, what is your opinion, I suppose, on the West lacking responsibility in cleaning up the mess it causes when entering countries, either for colonialist or war for, war for, <laughs> warfare, apologies, reasons? Well, this is, I think, a very um, complicated reason. I think uh, if you take a longer term historical perspective, mm. I think uh, every time that the international community uh, has abandoned Afghanistan, uh, they have later found reasons that they should not have done so. So, I mean, we should, if you again look at the longer history in the 1980s, Afghanistan went the direction it went because of international conflict between the Western powers and the Soviet Union at that time. And then once the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan, Western powers also lost interest. And as a result of that, in the 1990s, we had this mass anarchy and civil war and total uh, breakdown of the the political order in the country. And that gave rise to groups like the Taliban, and uh, and the Taliban then gave sanctuaries to groups such as Al-Qaeda. So I I think... uh, I think, I think it is difficult to um, give one particular reason for why Western powers do this, because mm. so many countries uh, are involved and we talk about Western powers and they have got different reasons and different dynamics in their uh, politics. And obviously election being one of those dynamics that often um, uh, uh, make it more difficult for sustained commitment to um, uh, countries uh, um, far away from the, the domestic constituencies. Absolutely. And how do you predict negotiations to carry out between Af- the Afghanistan government and the Taliban if, does, if this does come across? Well, I think this is going to be a very difficult and uh, uh, messy process, I would predict. Mm. Um, although uh, the hope is that with the signing of the deal between the US and the Taliban, the Taliban would uh, agree to negotiate with the Afghan government. We should remember that the Taliban has so far refused to negotiate directly with the Afghan government right, as an yeah. Afghan government. Mm. 
mm-hmm. because they don't see it as legitimate. Gotcha. And at the same time, um, so it was, if you don't recognize a party the, the conflict, it would be uh, difficult uh, how that negotiation would take place. Mm. There is, however, a hope that they would, you know, uh, slowly talk to government officials as individuals without publicly acknowledging that they're talking to the Afghan government. And at the same time, there are significant concerns when it comes to negotiating a deal with the Taliban over issues of women's rights, mm. minority rights, and civil and political freedoms, uh, which are all protected by the current Afghan constitution, which was adopted in much, Dr. Nimitala, for coming on today and talking to us more about this. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, so we will be watching this space. I'm sure we'll get you back on uh, to talk about progressions in the situation as they uh, they arise. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. No, no problem. Thank you. And we are coming up to the end of our show, so wrapping up uh, just with the guests that we've had on today, we've had Professor Billy um, Giles-Corty, and she was talking about uh, city life design and well-being and how they all kind of intersect. We also had Scott Jordan at 7.45 from the Bob Brown Foundation uh, on an update about the Tarkeen in Taz. You can check Bob Brown out on uh, Twitter to follow the updates in that case. We also just at 8 o'clock had Dr. Patricia Ranald uh, talking about trade agreements within the Pacific region and our terrible trade relations at the moment in Australia between its neighbours. And finally, just then, we had uh, Nimatala Ibrahani from La Trobe talking about this Afghan deal and this just amazing deal, but... Very, very ill-thought-out deal. I also just wanted to bring up uh, yesterday's announcement from the Andrews government in Victoria that it will lift the monetarium on the exploration of onshore conventional gas reserves but will enshrine a permanent ban on fracking and coal seam gas exploration in the state's constitution. So a bit of a mix of good news and bad news. Now, the government will uh, introduce two bills to Parliament, one which effectively lifts this memotarium and allows for a restart on onshore conventional gas exploration from the 1st of July 2018. 21. Uh, in light of restrictions on public gatherings due to COVID-19, face-to-face actions are now being changed to digital actions. So a snap actions uh, held by Friends of the Earth will be running uh, di- as a digital rally, which allows community members to express disappointment from their decision uh, whilst also maintaining social distancing. So you can find more info at our Melbourne Friends of the Earth site, which is www.melbournefoe.org.au. Um, and that should lead you to the snap action from there. Thank you so much for listening in today. I've been Idwin, and this is Wednesday Breakfast. Talk to you next week. Next up, stick together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.